Thank you, worship team. It's very loud. All right. So today I'm going to read from Genesis 16, page 14 in the Pew Bibles. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Come up, Lauren. She'll be giving the sermon tonight. (laughs) True story. Please bow with me and pray. Dear Lord, please be with Lauren tonight. Help her to speak words of truth and speak what you want her to speak. Um, Help us all, everyone else, to listen and understand what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Josh. Before the service, uh, Josh said to me, I can't wait to hear what you're going to do with this, because I read the passage and thought, what? And I said, yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, We are diving back into our Genesis series today with this fascinating, uh, complex chapter, uh, which is 
really a conflict narrative of a highly dysfunctional family. And it does what so many Old Testament narratives do, which is to use the brokenness and failings of humanity to ultimately reveal to us more deeply the character and heart of God. You know, there are so many stories in the Old Testament especially where it is so clear they are not included in the Bible as like a how-to manual for optimal Christian living. Like, be exactly like these people. Like, often it is far from. There are some very questionable life choices made. Uh, But I love that these stories are in Scripture. They make for such... uh, relatable and reassuring content for us in our own brokenness. And they remind us of the abundance of God's grace, his works of redemption, and particularly how he establishes his purposes even through the immense fallibility of humankind. But as we get underway tonight, church, I'm going to be totally upfront with you. Writing this sermon has been a journey. (laughs) Uh, The plan was to have a finished draft by Wednesday, uh, edit and polish on Thursday, enjoy my weekend, Friday, Saturday, and then preach on Sunday. Rewind to about 10 p.m. on Wednesday night. Um, And while I did have a good three and a half thousand words of a draft written on my laptop, uh, I was also lying on the floor of my study, on the phone to my dad, who was also a pastor, and I was telling him in no uncertain terms that everything I had written was a flaming pile of garbage and there was absolutely no way to redeem this mess of a sermon before my Sunday deadline. So not like tracking with like the ideal schedule. Uh, You see, for as long as I can remember, I have been plagued by perfectionism. Actually, one of my earliest memories of experiencing the feeling of shame uh, was in kindergarten when I was reading a book aloud to one of the teachers and I mispronounced the word iron as iron. I mean, you can imagine the shame, right? (laughs) I mean, the teacher gently corrected me, but I felt so, so awful. I mean, bear in mind, this is kindergarten. I was four years old. I don't think anyone in the class could even read. I had just read an entire book, otherwise fluently, made this one tiny and very understandable error. But that's all my brain remembers. Uh, There's just something in my internal wiring that just tends to really overemphasize mistakes. Now, put that in a ministry context, uh, particularly with the weight and the responsibility of preaching, and it just, it dials those tendencies up to 11. I mean, you are interpreting God's word. You are speaking into the lives of his people with potentially eternal consequences. I mean, you have to get that right, right? I mean, with that internal monologue, it is a wonder I have ever managed to finish a sermon. I'm not going to lie, but for the grace of God, go I. (laughs) Anyway, as I lay on the floor of the study on Wednesday night, uh, listening to the patient and wise counsel of my father, uh, which included but was not limited to maybe just need to go to bed, (laughs) um, as we talked, I was struck by the somewhat meta nature of my struggle, the kind of lived parable that I was experiencing as I tried to write this sermon, uh, because ultimately I was wrestling with writing a message about God's grace and redemption in the face of the unknown and the face of failure. And I was stressed because I didn't know how to do it and I was worried about getting it wrong, (laughs) which was just like so on the nose that I had to laugh. You know, there's times we just feel really seen by God. 
Anyway, I did end up turfing most of that original draft and I started over, this time really just trying to embrace the mess because this passage is just one big mess. It is complicated, it is tangled and trying to find a perfect way through it is impossible. Trying to find a comprehensive way through it is also impossible within the reasonable time limits of a sermon length. So I thought, what does it boil down to, really? We have a tale here of two women, Hagar and Sarai. Now, Hagar is the underdog. She is the voiceless nobody that gets caught up in as sort of collateral damage in other people's mistakes. But she also winds up having this profound encounter with God in the desert. And I thought, surely that's the message I've got to be writing. I mean, God advocating for the outsider, the victim, the broken. I mean, I think at one point or another, each of us has seen ourselves in Hagar, you know, the one who has been wronged and cast aside, the one who is unable to see her own worth. And then God meets us in our place of brokenness. He affirms our value and personhood and speaks hope and direction into our future. I mean, that is a beautiful message. Surely that's what God wants me to preach tonight. I thought, uh, ultimately, it is not the message I found myself drawn to as much as I tried to press into that Hagar narrative again and again, I kept finding myself going back to Sarai, scheming, hypocritical Sarai. Now, the biblical commentators are often quite harsh on Sarai, and I'll admit, when I first read the text, I found it quite easy to condemn her as well. I mean, she concocts this surrogacy scheme, she then blames her husband when it goes wrong, and she abuses her slave so badly that Hagar is forced to flee and take refuge in the desert wilderness. And all of this is happening at odds with the covenantal promises of God. So, I mean, she doesn't come off great uh, in terms of a role model for faith. And yet, the more I sat with the text, the more I found myself wanting to defend Sarai, or at least to encourage greater sympathy on her behalf. Uh, Because as much as I wanted to identify with Hagar, you know, the downtrodden victim who has this redemptive and profound encounter with God, honestly, I saw myself more in the flaws of Sarai. And as we drill down into the complex layers of her experience tonight, I suspect you might find some resonance in there for yourself as well. So we're going to start with just a bit of a character study, a bit of an introduction. What do we know about Sarai? Well, she's first introduced to us in Genesis 11 as Abram's wife. And so accordingly, she makes the journey with him from Haran after God's call. Now, the story of their journey to Canaan is very much framed from Abram's perspective, that he has to leave his country and his people. But I think we can also fairly safely assume that such a move would have been a big upheaval for Sarai as well. I mean, presumably, she too is leaving all that is familiar to her. Now, this is followed by another round of upheaval when Abram leads the family to Egypt after there was severe famine in the land. 
And if this in itself wasn't enough change for Sarai to deal with, as they prepare to arrive in Egypt, you may remember from Genesis 12, Abram panics that the Egyptians will kill him so that they can freely marry Sarai for themselves. She's described as being a very beautiful woman. And so Abram, in arguably a somewhat ungentlemanly act of self-preservation, he convinces Sarai to pretend that she's his sister so that he will be treated really well. And indeed, you know, we read that he's treated very well. He accumulates all sorts of livestock and servants and wealth. All the while, Sarai is basically carried off to live in the Pharaoh's harem, kind of traded like a commodity, which this was very much in keeping with the time and the, and the patriarchal culture. Of course, as you may remember, God ends up intervening. He inflicts all these diseases on Pharaoh and his household, and ultimately Sarai is reunited with Abram. Now look, we don't know what Sarai's thoughts or responses were to any of this. Uh, we can only speculate because she is very much just written as a, as a passive, almost a background character in those early chapters. Really the only concrete information that we have about her is that she's very beautiful. Uh, and we also know that being a woman of that time, she doesn't have a great deal of agency. Uh, she is duty-bound to follow her husband's lead, be that to the promised land of Canaan, or indeed being sent into the harem of Pharaoh in Egypt. But perhaps the most critical detail of Sarai for us to understand is the one that is given at the very first mention of her name back in Genesis 11, when we are told that Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, this was a significant defining characteristic for Sarai, and it is a fact that is repeated and emphasized all throughout this Genesis narrative arc because of how it relates to the promises of God for Abram. Now, you may remember God has promised to make Abram a great nation, promised that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so as hearers of this story, we're being invited into that that tension between the lofty promises of God and the stark reality of Sarai's barrenness. This detail about Sarai brings a whole new dimension to the notion of faith and, and trusting in God. But I think it's also important for us to consider this part of Sarai not only in that that broad context of the covenantal promises and the implications for Abram's faith, but also simply for her personally as a woman. You know, particularly a woman of that time and culture where childbearing was everything. I mean, as a woman, that was your primary value, your status, your purpose. There was such a a stigma and a deep humiliation associated with childlessness. So what had it been like for Sarai to carry this grief of infertility for so many years, for decades? How much did she ache with longing? How much were her days marked with feelings of of shame or failure or inadequacy, maybe bitterness, regret, doubt, despair. Again, we can only speculate, but I do think it's helpful for us to really humanize Sarah as much as possible, to see her as a whole person and to really hold that, that depth of context with us as we journey into the details of today's narrative. 
So let's turn to the story itself, chapter 16. It begins with yet another reiteration of Sarai's childlessness. And we learn that it has now prompted her to devise a scheme. She says to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now to our modern ears and our modern marriages, this might sound fairly problematic. Uh, It might sound more like something you'd see in an episode of The Handmaid's Tale. And we can be quick to condemn Sarai and Abram for going along with it. Um, But there's a few important factors for us to bear in mind here. Firstly, the cultural context. As far as we understand it, this approach to childbearing was a typical custom of the time. Uh, If a wife was unable to produce children for her husband, she could use her, her slave or maidservant as a surrogate, and those children would still legally be hers. That was accepted standard practice. Secondly, it's also worth noting that at this point, God's promises to Abram thus far, he's only promised that Abram will be the father of many nations and that the son will be his flesh and blood. No such promises have been recorded to include Sarai yet. That the son will biologically be Sarai's is only explicitly stated by God from chapter 17 onwards. Here in chapter 16, this has yet to be revealed. And it's also worth remembering that at this point, it has been 10 years that they have been living in Canaan. Now, God initially gave Abram that threefold promise of land, descendants, and blessing. It has now been a full decade of them occupying said land, still no descendants to speak of. And by this point, Abram is in his 80s. Sarai is in her 70s. So, in light of all of that, it is not entirely unreasonable that Sarai brings this suggestion to her husband. Slave surrogacy was a valid alternative for childbearing at that time, and for Abram, that child would still be his flesh and blood as the biological father, so it's holding true to the word of God that was given to him in the preceding chapter. And so initially, it seems that the scheme is successful. I mean, Abram agrees with the plan. He sleeps with Hagar. She conceives. Then it all kind of starts to hit the fan. Uh, Verse 4 tells us that once Hagar knows she's pregnant, she begins to despise her mistress. And Sarai tells Abram that she is now suffering due to Hagar. Now, we're not given the details of the interactions between these two women. Uh, We don't know exactly what it would have looked like. Uh, But if it helps, another rendering of that word despise is uh, look down upon or sort of look with contempt, you know, see as less than. And I think it's easy to imagine how that would happen. I mean, in a culture where so much worth and value and status is placed in childbearing, and here you've got Hagar, who's gone from lowly slave girl nobody to now another wife for Abram, head of the household. And not only that, she is now carrying his first child. It's not surprising that Hagar might now consider herself a bit more of an elevated status and for that to inevitably bring with it a level of disdain or resentment towards Abram's first wife, Sarai. 
And then consider for Sarah, who for decades has carried this intense grief of childlessness to now have her slave, her subordinate, not only pregnant to her husband, but looking down on her with contempt. I mean, the layers of raw hurt and pain that that would involve. You can just imagine the havoc that is being wreaked on their household dynamics, the imbalance and confusion of the power and status, the grief, the resentment, the anger. So perhaps unsurprisingly, we see it turn into a bit of a blame game. Uh, First, Sarai takes it out on Abram. Uh, She blames him for everything she's enduring from Hagar, which is not exactly fair. Uh, But interestingly, Abram then sort of passes the buck. He abdicates any responsibility in solving the matter and simply tells Sarai, well, she's your slave. Do whatever you think is best. And Sarai takes that as permission to mistreat Hagar, who then flees into the desert. Not exactly a gold star moment for Abram in mediation and conflict resolution between his two wives. So if we take stock of where we've landed, uh, Sarai is without her servant. Hagar has lost her home. Abram has lost his second wife and unborn child. And what had started out as a potentially reasonable proposition has instead resulted in these disastrous consequences. And the relationships between Sarai, Abram and Hagar are this tangled web of conflict, hurt and brokenness. It is an absolute mess. Now, I said at the outset that many biblical commentators have tended to come down quite harshly on Sarai. Uh, This story is often held up as the what not to do. Uh, It's held up as the example of, well, this is what happens when you don't trust God. This is what happens when you don't patiently wait for God's timing and instead take matters into your own hands. I mean, Sarai is faulted for her action and initiative and she's criticized for her lack of faith. But the thing about these judgment calls on Sarai is that they are all made with the benefit of hindsight, knowing the full extent of the fallout and the consequences that followed. See, Sarai didn't have any of that knowledge. And when we look at what her present experience would have been, all the information that she had to work with in the moment, I wonder how many of us would have made that same calculation. Looked around and thought, maybe this is what God wants me to do. You know, walking a life of faith and following Jesus, we don't always have all the answers. The way is not always so clear or so easy or so straightforward. Yes, we have the basics. Love God, love others. You know, walk humbly, act justly, love mercy. What about all the specifics, the details, understanding God's will for our individual lives, the decisions we have to make, our relationships, our jobs, all the situations we have to navigate in the complexities of life? I mean, we say, trust in the Lord, pray continually, be led by the Holy Spirit, And this is all fundamental truth, wise counsel, and solid theology. I don't dispute any of that. In fact, I greatly endorse and affirm it. Let me be clear. But I do want to also acknowledge the reality that sometimes it's still just really hard. 
Sometimes we don't get those really clear answers from God in the ways or the timing we expect. Sometimes we don't know exactly the right decision to make in a particular circumstance. And sometimes, like Sarai, we make a choice. We take action and it doesn't end well. We see the fallout, the consequences, the collateral damage. But the encouragement we can find in this story is the knowledge that God's purposes are not derailed by our missteps. I'll say that again. God's purposes are not derailed by our missteps. His grace is bigger than our mistakes. His wisdom is greater than our errors in judgment and there is nothing that is beyond his redemption. If we look again to Sarai and Abram, you know, they've tried to manufacture an heir and, and build a family by their own complicated workaround in what looks like an attempt to bring their own fulfillment to the covenant promises of God. And their DIY contingency has some heavy consequences. You know, not only all the interpersonal conflict that we've seen within the chapter, but also the historical legacy that's to follow down the line. Uh, If you note the prophetic word that's spoken to Hagar um, about Ishmael living in hostility towards all his brothers, I mean, it's a real mess. But this mess does not void the promises of God. It does not torpedo his greater purpose for Abram. As we will read in the subsequent chapters, as we'll hear in the coming weeks of this series, God's promise of an heir, a flesh and blood son for Abram and Sarai, the one whose descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, this promise still comes to pass. God's purposes are still fulfilled. His word is still accomplished. God still chooses to use and bless Abram and Sarai even in their failings. This is a profound message of grace. And it is the same grace that extends to us today as followers of Jesus. In all our failure and weakness, with all our regrets and mistakes as these broken vessels, we are held in the all-sufficiency of God's grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a blessed assurance this is. Now, to be clear, living in the assurance of grace does not mean that we live carelessly. It's not a case of, well, I'll just do whatever I want and God will redeem the mess. Not at all. I mean, as we've seen in this chapter Our choices have consequences. Uh, We've seen the path of conflict and hurt that is littered behind Sarai's actions in this story, the collateral damage that follows even generations down the line. It is not something to be taken lightly. We still need to be so mindful of how we live, how we interact with the world, but we hold all of that responsibility in companion with the reassuring truth 
that God's purposes are not derailed by our missteps. His grace is bigger than our mistakes. His wisdom is greater than our errors in judgment. And there is nothing that is beyond his redemption. There is great comfort and assurance for us in this truth. Because as we've acknowledged tonight, the life of faith can be hard. We don't always hear from God in the ways that we want. It's not always clear or immediately clear what decision we should make or what path we should walk. But as I know full well from personal experience, we cannot live in the paralysis of perfectionism. You know, holding back from doing anything unless we know it's 100% right. Instead, we have to learn to live in the mess of grace. Trusting God, seeking his will, being patient in his timing, making choices, taking action, and acknowledging in humility that we may not always get it right, but we can rest in his perfect promises, knowing that he will establish his purposes, that there is nothing that is beyond his redemption And his grace will always be sufficient. Why don't you join me in prayer? Our Lord and our God, as Hagar named you in this passage today, thank you that you are the God who sees. You see each one of us. You know us by name. You see the best parts of us and also the very worst. You know us completely and you love us unconditionally. We give you thanks for the abundance and all sufficiency of your grace. Thank you that your grace is bigger than our mistakes. So we bring our hearts to you afresh today, Lord, with our failures, our weakness, our brokenness, and we humbly rejoice in your redemption. Thank you that you are the God who restores. So would you continue to have your way in us, Lord? Establish your purposes in our hearts as we offer our lives to you. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we long to walk with you in the mess of grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.